Again, welcome this morning. So glad that you're here as we continue to celebrate um, who this God is and the fact that he has, has come uh, to rescue us. Uh, and, and again, I just want to add uh, my thanks as well. It was really fun. Uh, uh, the staff members, we were all seated on this front row here. There's about 60 uh, fourth and fifth grade element, uh, students from, from Woodland. Um, and, and for us, I mean, it, they sang for like 30 minutes, told us jokes. I mean, it was kind of ridiculous, actually, but it was a lot of fun. And what it said, what it said to us, what it said to me is that for those 60 kids, only one of, one of whom uh, attends Christ's community, uh, that those kids, they, they know that there is a church that loves them. Uh, and that longs to, to partner with them and to see them, to see them flourish. And so it was, it was, yeah, it was crazy, but it was a blast. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being a church that gives and is generous in those, in those ways. Let me, let me pray for us, and we'll jump in. God, we are, are so grateful uh, that you speak to us. God, that you speak through your word, these things written down so long ago for us. Uh, as well, God, you speak to us through your son who has come to rescue us. And so, God, I pray that as we enter into this story, I pray that it wouldn't just be another cute Christmas, whatever, um, but that it'd be, it'd be life-changing, that we, would, that we would find ourselves in this story, that you would convict us and challenge us, as well as encourage us and give us, give us hope in who you are and what you are doing um, with your world. So we trust you, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, I think, I think we probably all would recognize uh, that it at least seems that there are a whole lot of Christians who just enjoy being angry, right? I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, I mean, I kind of hate to bring it up a little bit because I know some of you are probably going to even be mad at me for this. Um, but the whole earlier this season, like the Starbucks cup thing, really? Let's, let's watch. Folks, uh, you know, we're just past Halloween which means we're about to enter the magical season of getting angry that there's not enough talk about Christmas. <laughs> Jim? Starbucks is stirring up controversy over its plain red cups for the holiday season. Some evangelical Christians are very upset that the coffee giant is doing away with symbols of the season like the snowflakes, the snowmen, and the other kind of ornaments. Yes, they got rid of the Christian religious symbols like snowflakes and snowmen. <laughs> I mean... I think we all remember the story of when baby Jesus was visited by the three wise Frosties. <laughs> and I can see why people might be all frothed up about this. Now Starbucks is completely devoid of any trace of the holiday besides the Christmas tree ornaments, advent calendars, CDs of Christmas music, Christmas-themed gift cards, Christmas cookies, and giant displays of their Christmas blend coffee. <laughs> So seriously, what, what is it about us um, that rarely gets mad at the right things, like a world in which there is real injustice everywhere, um, and yet somehow seems to get mad at missing snowflakes? Really? I mean, I, I saw one Facebook comment, not that, I mean, Facebook, it's, anyway, it's a bad place to look when this kind of thing happens, uh, but it, was, it just it caught me off guard because uh, it literally, I'm not, I'm not literally compared Starbucks with ISIS. As if the removal of a few snowflakes with delicious coffee, I might add, um, is anything like terrorism. And, and if, it's, if, it, if it's not, you know, Starbucks and their, their Jesusless cups, uh, it's another store who refuses to say, to say Merry Christmas. And, and meanwhile, meanwhile, there are Christians in the world who are really persecuted. 
like actually marginalized, who, who have their rights taken from them, who are imprisoned and, and even murdered today all across the globe because they follow Jesus. And even though our, our experience couldn't be more different, and we need, we need to recognize that, right, as a people, even so, this points to a controversy or, 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 or the, the reason, there's a reason why this, this day is, is so controversial, Christmas. In fact, it shouldn't surprise any of us if people reject Christmas. In fact, if anything should surprise us, it's that so many people celebrate any version of it whatsoever. Because at, at its core, like in its, in its origins, this, this day, this, this holiday, like Christmas is the most divisive day there could possibly be, Really? I mean, we think of it as a, as a day that, like, you know, brings people together. Uh, and for us, culturally, that's, that's, that's true, essentially. But, but at its origins, it's a day that, that tore people apart. Jesus is a polarizing figure, and that began on day one and has continued for the last 2,000 years. You see, Christmas is either the best day or the worst day. There's no middle ground, no, like, halfways or in-betweensies, Right? Um, I know that sounds extreme, extreme but it's, it's either the, the best or the, or the worst. And, and by, by Christmas, let me, I mean, let me be clear, right? I don't, I don't mean by Christmas all the, the food and the, the, the family and the, the presents. And I mean, I love all those things. Who doesn't, right? But that's, that's not what I mean when I say Christmas. By, by Christmas, I mean the day, the day that God was born on planet Earth. The, the day he came to save us from our sins. And d- depending on how we receive that news makes it either the best day or the worse. And we see that this morning in one of the most familiar Christmas stories. It's in Matthew chapter 2, if you want to follow along in your Bibles or, or on, your, on your phone. We'll also have it on the, on the screen here for us. It's not the, the story of, you know, the three wise Frosties, right? Imagine that in a, in a desert, right? Um, it's these three wise men they're often referred to, or magi, and probably just about every person in this room, you've got a nativity scene probably somewhere in your house, most of us, if not all, right? Probably several of them. Um, no nativity scene is complete without a few wise men, right? It's one of the most familiar stories. And yet I think few of us knows what it, what it, really, what it really is about. There's a stark contrast that Matthew is trying to communicate here that we, that we often miss. And only Matthew records this story. The other gospel writers don't. Uh, and he, he does so uh, for, for this reason. He wants, he wants us to see that the arrival of Jesus, it's either the best day or the worst. And even 2,000 years later, we have, to, we have to decide which one it's going to be. Okay, so this, this story uh, centers upon these most unlikely worshipers. And I, I realize for some of us, right, that you think about this three wise men, the star, and all that, this seems like, God, it's like the most far-fetched story imaginable. I, I totally get it, right? It seems way over the top. Uh, and yet Matthew, he, he goes out of his way uh, to root these events in, in historical reality. And as we've said in the past, right, as we've begun studying Matthew, Matthew's writing at a time when there are people still alive to either confirm or deny whether or not these things actually happened. In verse 1, we heard these first two verses read. Let me read the beginning of it again for us. 
Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, he tells us, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, so I kind of hate to do this this close to Christmas. Um, this is going to be infuriating to some, disappointing to others, and just downright heresy, right, to a few people probably. Um, but this, this story, this, your nativity scene is all wrong. That's what I'm getting at. Um, I, no scholar believes any of that is actually, it's, I mean, they, these three wise men, when they come into the scene, there's no manger, right? There's, there's no shepherds there. Verse 11 says this happens at Jesus' house, okay? Uh, and most scholars would say that Jesus is probably between a year, year and a half old at this point. Okay, so this isn't, this isn't first Christmas. This is more like second Christmas, okay? Um, so that, that's kind of the first thing. I, I know heresy, but um, I, think, I think that's what's happening. And so maybe a first next step out of this is when you get home later, go over to your nativity set, um, pick up the wise men, and just move them on the other side of the room, okay? Because uh, they're, not, they're not there yet, and they, they still have a long way to go. They're still, they're still on this, this journey to see this, this new king. Well, who are they? Well, they probably weren't kings, despite some of the rumors, right? We three kings and whatnot. Um, but they were extremely well off. And that's obvious from the, the gifts that they're able to give this, this new king. Uh, they're also uh, known to be, you know, incredible scholars, given, given this title of magi, as, as well as the work that it would do to figure out exactly when and how these prophecies and ancient documents are all pointing them uh, to go in, in this direction. And so they're considered wise. There were probably three of them because of the three gifts, but Matthew doesn't tell us that either. Um, and regardless, uh, people of that influence, that amount of resources on that big of a journey, we're talking like a huge entourage with this, okay? Uh, it's a lot of people who are making this journey. Now, the word, the word translated there as wise men, it's literally the word magi. Like, what does that mean? Most scholars think that it's, it refers to this sort of ancient uh, group of, of pagan astrologers, essentially. Uh, scholars, yes, they were sort of the intellectually who's who, uh, but they were absolutely part of a different religious strand, right? Um, a religion that the Old Testament would have, would have quickly uh, and, and easily dis- disregarded. So that's, that's like strike one against them. Here's another strike. There's no way... They fit the ethnic expectations of the Israelites. They were, most, they were from the east, Matthew tells us. Most likely that means from, from Babylon. It's modern day Iraq. Arabs and Israelites haven't always been the best of friends, right? A lot of that conflict is millennia old, isn't it? But you see, many, many of the Jews had ended up resettling in Babylon during, during the exile, hundreds of years before this. And so it makes sense that the, the Magi, being from Babylon, would have had access to some of these old historical documents, these ancient prophecies that are, that are mentioned here that would have led them uh, to head to Israel. And Babylon was, was one of the most influential places uh, in the ancient world, right? I mean, this is, this is, no, like, this is a big deal from, from a place like, like Babylon. In fact, it was considered the, the center uh, for astronomy and astrology of the ancient Near East. Um, there's uh, records dating all the way back uh, to the 8th century BC about their, their study of the stars. Um, this is an ancient pathway that these magi are most likely a part of. 
but they're Babylonians. They're Israel's ethnic enemies. They, they hate these guys. And they're, and they're of a different religion. I mean, this is way outside the box, right? And Matthew wants us to see it right, right away, right, right here immediately as we enter in, uh, that if, if anybody is unlikely to celebrate Christmas, it's these guys. There's no way they fit into this story. Well, they don't know that, apparently. Or, or they do, and they just don't care. And so they make this 800-mile 800, 800 trek from Babylon to Jerusalem. That's about ancient travel. That probably would have been about 40 days each way. It's like taking a, a camel from here to New Orleans and then, and then back, right? It's a big journey. And they go to Jerusalem. That's the capital, right, city. And they go there because that's where they expect a king to be born, right? The king is coming. It's going to happen in the, in the palaces. That's, that's what they go there. That's what they're expecting. That's what they come to Herod, uh, planning to hear news about this new king from him. But here's another sort of layer of irony in this story, right? The, the reader already knows that this new king has been born in Podunk, Bethlehem, only six miles from Jerusalem, just down the road. They'd seen a star, which is probably where, for many of us, the story gets weird um, or weirder, right? And, and there's a lot of, you know, debate historically, theologically even, what is, what is happening here. Um, one recent study was published just a, a few weeks ago uh, in Christianity Today. talks about uh, maybe it was, it was a comet. There are historical records that say that there are a few comets roughly around the same time period. A comet behaves in the same way or similar way that the text uh, describes, um, who knows, right? Uh, if you're wired a bit scientifically or maybe just a little skeptical, look up, look up the article. It was, it was a good read. didn't take very long. Um, I, found it, I found it at the very least to be pretty fascinating. Uh, but whatever it was, right, and most likely it's, it's probably a combination of both a, a supernatural event, right, uh, as well as something, something physical, right, uh, that they actually saw something. And they likely knew when they saw it, they likely knew the prophecies of another guy from the East. This guy named Balaam, uh, 1,400 years earlier. It's recorded in the Old Testament book of Numbers. Uh, he said that a star shall come out of Jacob, that's Israel, uh, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. But in this story, the star wasn't enough, right? Because they arrived six miles off course, which is just sort of humorous, right? They, they, they need the, this natural revelation, but they also need to, to re-examine these, these ancient words, right? So they go back uh, to the source to figure out where exactly uh, was, the star, was the star leading them. And so they go, to, they go to King Herod, and they say to him, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod, here, here's an image of Herod, good-looking guy, right? Um, quite a beard. Um, you know, Herod, of course, is just thrilled to find out that there's another king of the Jews. Hey, wait a second, that's my title. And all of a sudden, he's, he's starting to, to squirm a little bit. And what's interesting here, I mean, Herod is an Israelite, okay, but he's been appointed by the Romans to rule over Judea. Essentially, he's like their, their puppet king, right? And he, he is good at it. 
Uh, Matthew doesn't tell us a lot about Herod, uh, but I mean, any history book will tell you that, I mean, Herod was a political guru, right? Um, I mean, he, he ruled the ancient part, that ancient part of the world, and he, he ruled it pretty ruthlessly. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, house of cards times, times 10, right? This guy, his ability to manipulate and to maintain power, to squelch any, any sort of opposition, I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, he was wealthy as well. Um, he was also an incredible architect and builder. He still marveled at over the things that he accomplished, like the, the uh, restoration of the temple uh, in Jerusalem. I and mean, that's a, a model of what it, what it looked like. He accomplished that, right, in the first, first century. He was also resented by the Jews as a traitor because he's in the hip pocket of the colonizers, right? And man, did he love power. I mean, so much so that he... he murders his favorite wife, as, as well as two of his sons, at least two of his sons, and several other relatives also, all for sort of, you know, overstepping their place. Late in life, which is where, where our story takes place, um, historians tell us that he was likely ravaged by some kind of disease. Don't really know what it was, but um, every record would, would state that it, was, it, it pushed him into a further sense of, of paranoia, um, ruthlessness, cruelty, fits of rage, I mean, you name it. I mean, so much so that he actually arranged to have hundreds of Jewish leaders executed on the day that he would die, just to make sure somebody would cry at his funeral. That's, that's King Herod. And again, Matthew doesn't tell us all that, because Matthew's writing to people who, who knew all that, intimately. They'd seen it, they'd experienced it. They, they knew who Herod was but he's Jewish. Shouldn't he be excited about the Messiah, right? That this, this king, the promise from of old, finally coming to, to make things right. And, and so, I mean, Herod, he gathers all of the, the, the Jewish leaders um, around him, the scribes, the, the religious folks, right? Uh, the people who, who knew the, these ancient texts and, and all that. He gathers them together. They're still uh, with the Magi to ask them, okay, where is this supposed to happen? Right, they're here. It's, I don't think it's here. Where? Where should they go? And so these religious leaders tell them, well, according to the prophecies of, of Micah, for example, 700 years before this, that this king is supposed to be born in, in, in Bethlehem. It's time to celebrate. Right? Christmas is here. He's arrived. But no, Matthew tells us when Herod the king heard all this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And troubled is really an understatement there. The, the word means more literally to shake with fear. Like, like to stir up almost, almost to the point of, of riot. In fact, one, one author, I love how he phrases it, Frederick Buechner. He says, for all his enormous power, Herod knew there was somebody in diapers more powerful still. And he trembles at the thought of this little baby. And when Herod is troubled, Jerusalem is troubled. Even, even the religious leaders. Because you would think for a moment that maybe, just maybe, but the way the Matthew tells it, they're apathetic at best, right? And so Herod, he convinces the Magi, he says, well, you, you go to Bethlehem, you find out where this king is, because uh, I'd, I'd love to go and worship him, Right? Are you picking up the contrast of what's happening here? So these, these magi, right? 
who you would never in a million years imagine with Jesus, they travel 800 miles to meet this new king. Herod and the religious leaders, the people that should, they won't even go the last six. And so off they go on their own. Again, Matthew tells us they, they see a star. They make, they make the journey. Um, it says that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, which I'm pretty sure in the Greek just means a whole lot of joy, right? They're pretty excited about what's happening. They find the child in, in his home, and they fall down and worship him. Foreigners, pagans, outsiders. For them, Christmas is the best day. For Herod, the religious leaders, insiders, the people who should know better, it's the worst. Well, as the story goes, right, out come the gifts, right? Most of us are probably at least a little bit familiar with that. None of us can spell frankincense, but we know generally that that's one of the gifts, right? Frankincense and myrrh, it's these ancient, exotic, really expensive ointments uh, or, or perfumes, uh, and gold, of course, is gold. Who wouldn't, who wouldn't want gold for Christmas? And, and subtly here, these are, these are demonstrations that Jesus, he is the king. He deserves the, the very best, our, our everything. And yet even more so, these, gonna, these gifts are going to come in super handy in just a minute. Because the story doesn't end here. In fact, it, it, gets, it gets pretty awful. And so the, the Magi, that night, apparently, they... They have a dream, and dreams are pretty important in these first two chapters of Matthew. There's lots of dreams, and they all mean something significant. Um, and in the dream, they're warned about Herod, and so they, they head back by a different route, and that's the, last, that's the last we ever hear of them. That's it. That's the end of their story as far as, as far as we know. We don't know anything else about them. And the next night, it seems anyway, it's hard to tell exactly when, but it's soon after, uh, Joseph also has a dream. And God says to Joseph, you got to flee. you gotta, you got to run to Egypt. Herod is, is coming to kill my son, my savior for the world. And so he goes. And for this, this poor carpenter, right, to leave everything, right, in, in, in a moment and make the, the travel, right, 75 miles just to the border of Egypt where they go and to resettle there. I mean, those gifts are pretty important, aren't they? only way that's possible. The Magi's gifts are, are God's provision and continuing his plan. And so King Jesus then uh, spends his, his early years um, on planet Earth as a refugee, as an, as an immigrant, right? As a, one who had to flee from the violence of political hostility. And, and Matthew, Matthew points this out, right? He says this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. And just in time, really. This seems impossible, I know, but we, we know that Herod was certainly capable of this, given, given his history. Uh, but duped by the Magi and desperate to maintain power, he has all the, all the little boys, ages two and under, in Bethlehem, murdered. I mean, how many, how many of you have... Sons, two and under, or grandsons, right? Or nephews, or brothers, or whatever, right? Bethlehem was a small village, so we're talking maybe 10 or, or 20 uh, children. A lot of pain in a small town. 
Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking like, like I've been thinking, right? Well, I mean, God goes out of his way to save this one child. Couldn't he have, like, just saved all of them? Would that have been so hard? Of course he could have. And yet Matthew knows our biggest problem isn't our life. It's not our families or our kids. Our biggest problem is that we need a Savior who's going to fix more than just our circumstances, but everything. Who's going to set the world to right? Who's going to make sense of it all and create a place where none of this happens anymore? And then finally, down the road, right? Story ends, Herod dies, another dream, uh, and Jesus and his family, they, they head back to Israel and they settle in a town called Nazareth. Another fulfillment, Matthew points out, of the ancient prophecies. Weird story, right? It's just strange. Uh, and yet it's way more than we often think of, right, when we dust off those three figurines every December. Why does Matthew tell us? Why does he spend so much time, right? An entire chapter out of, out of just 28. Why? Again, it's all about the contrast. Christmas is either the best day or the worst. There's, there's no middle ground. And he's showing us here what he's going to show us over and over again throughout all 28 chapters of this book, time and time again. Those who you would think would follow him, right, would, would give their life to him, would declare them as their king over and over again. They're the ones who reject him, who want nothing to do with him, while those, those who you would quickly dis- disregard culturally, that you would think there's, there's no way Jesus could be for them. Over and over again, it's, it's, it's them who make Jesus king. Which means there's two things that we've got to wrestle with in this story, even, even 2,000 years later, because some things never change. Christmas is still missed most by those who should, who should see. Still missed by those who should see. I mean, honestly, studying this these last couple of weeks, I mean, thinking I, I knew the story, right, as I, as I went in and began to study this and, and seen so much that I'd never, I'd never seen before, I think the thing, honestly, that I walk, walk away with sort of haunted by is, um, I mean, I look like I fit in culturally. I mean, from our, from our cultural expectation and, and vantage point, because I'm, you know, I have my junk together, most of it, right, at least, as, as, far, as, as far as you know. I'm a religious person. I live a decent life. You add to that, I, I've got money, I've got power, I've got education, I look like I belong. But take a closer look at your nativity scene. I'm not there. Because both the way Luke and Matthew tell these stories, I mean, Luke tells about the shepherds, right, who are first there. They are the the lowest of the low, the outcasts of all society. They're, They're there, and then about a year or so later, these strange, pagan, for lack of better words, foreigners are there. The people like me are nowhere in that scene. They're, they're, not, they're not in it. And for those, those of us who have grown up with Christmas or have grown up with Jesus, it's so easy to get complacent with the stories, forgetful of the promises, and frankly, easy to just completely miss the gift. We lose sight of what it's all for. I mean, just, just like the religious people in the story. I mean, if, if God has really come and if salvation is really real, then everything, everything changes. And for those of us who miss that, it is the worst day. And it's, it's easy for us, it's easy for me to miss, right? I mean, this time of year to get distracted. Um, 
just, we're just too busy to care, frankly, most times. Um, I miss it because I, I don't think I really need anything. Like, I've, I've, I, can take, I can fix my own problems, most of them anyway. Or miss it because, it's just, frankly, it's too hard to believe. But mostly we miss it because we don't think we actually need a savior. I'm okay. It's we who think we see who are often blindest of all. And to miss this is to miss everything. It makes it the worst day. And I know that that probably sounds extreme to you, but Christmas, if anything, it reminds us, it shows us how, how messed up we really are. I mean, the fact that this was the only way God could save us. He himself had to enter into his own story, had to die on a cross brutally in our place to offer us forgiveness and hope. I mean, Christmas tells us that, that my attempts to, to fix myself, to, to maintain control, to carve out my own sense of happiness, none of it's working. And if we miss this, we miss everything. I mean, for Herod and the religious leaders, they want nothing to do with Jesus. I don't want that to be me. And if any, any of this dis- describes you, if you feel any of that this season in particular, maybe for one, just slow down, right? Like take a deep breath. Just stop for a moment and remember what, it, what all of this other stuff is really for. Focus in on the center. Talk, talk to others about it. Um, your family, friends, the people, the people close in your life, and, and probably most of all, for all of us, just actually admit that you need saving. That you, you can't do it on your own. That this world is so broken, and that's the obvious part, but that I'm so broken that I need someone outside of myself to come in and rescue me. Don't miss it. Second, it's kind of the flip side of this. Because while Christmas is, is missed most by those who should see, it also belongs most to the unlikely. And so maybe, maybe here's a, a simple exercise. Again, assuming most of you have a, ma- uh, a set of magi, right, a, a nativity scene somewhere in your house, and if you don't, maybe just use your imagination. Um, but if you have one this afternoon, walk over to it, pick up, pick up the three wise men. Seriously. Um, and just look at them. Really look at them. And imagine every person you don't think could possibly end up following this king. Maybe it's a sibling or a friend, a coworker, right? And you're just like, man, they are too far gone for Jesus. Maybe it's an entire group of people, particular, particular lifestyle or political bent. Maybe, maybe it's people from a certain religious background and we just quickly disregard or an ideology like, There's, nah, nah, it's not for them. Maybe it's people who aren't from around here. Maybe those from a place like, like Babylon, right? Whoever you think couldn't make it in. And honestly, for some of you, maybe you see yourself if you do this. Because right? you, I mean, you see your, your pile of regrets and the, and the shame that you have and think, hey, this just isn't for me. Maybe it's, you're just, you're mountain of doubts. You're like, there's, there's no way this story could possibly be for me. Whoever, whoever you don't think could make it in or, or wouldn't want to make it in or if you're honest, that like you would just really prefer not to see there. If, if you're honest. The story of the Magi shows us that's exactly who Jesus comes for. These unlikely Arabs were some of the very first to come to Christ. 
Christmas really is for everyone. And even think about what God is doing across the world, right? The global Christianity is shifting in, in its focus and, and influence and for, for a lot of different reasons, and, and particularly in places like, like South America and, and places like, like Africa. And even just for us here for a moment to, to recognize that the way, the way it's all working, I mean, those of us here who are, who are white, it's okay to be white, right? Okay. Um, but we're going to be the minority in the new creation. Are you, are you okay with that? And not just okay, but do we celebrate that people from every tribe and tongue and nation, that, that all kinds of people will end up encountering this, this King Jesus? We mentioned, we mentioned a few weeks ago. I mean, I, I, I'm just always so surprised when I remember what God is doing outside of my own, like, three feet that I can see, right? Um, but we mentioned a, a few weeks ago our, our growing partnership with uh, the Shear Diocese in Rwanda, that we in Olathe are, are focusing in on, their, on what they're doing and, and uh, partnering with them, hoping to have a, a couple of us go and visit them uh, sometime early this year. Uh, but God is doing incredible things. I mean, they, they serve 323 local congregations uh, throughout that entire region. They have 200 preschools, 52 primary and secondary schools, a health center, 694 savings groups, a mother's union. Uh, they have programs to, to train and equip pastors, to plant new churches, uh, to, to care for the poor in their community, to work towards reconciliation as they continue to deal with the, the, the sins of 20 years ago, right, and the genocide that they've experienced. All of that, um, proclaiming Jesus throughout the region. And we're going to be a part of that. It's so easy to forget. God is bigger than our own little tiny square. And the reality is you, just, you don't have to look that far to find the people that we forget or the ones that we wouldn't expect or frankly that we just want to keep at arm's distance. You can look in your neighborhood, right? Kids in your school, your workplaces. Do you see the magi when you look at them? The potential the hope. What about refugees, for example? Man, that's a heated debate, isn't it? Yes, it is, it is absolutely complex. But we can't miss from the story that Jesus was a refugee, forced from his home. We, we know that this is a hard thing as a church. We're actually just kind of a save the day. It's in your note sheet. There's more details about it, but February 18th, it's a ways out. Uh, we're going to host an evening at our, at our downtown campus, but for all of our, all of our campuses, just to ask, like, how do we, how do we respond uh, to what, what God is doing, whether we, whether we feel comfortable with it or not? How, do, how are we going to handle it? Not just, not just from a political lens, right? Biblically, what does it mean for us as a community? Put that on your calendar because we need help, right? And we've got several people already lined up um, who are way smarter at these subjects than I am who are going to be there to help us as a church figure out what it means. As, as more and more refugees and immigrants come and are part of our city, how do we love, how do we care, how do we offer them a little picture of who Jesus is? Christmas is for the unli- unlikely. I actually heard a pretty unlikely story um, this past week. In fact, it was one of those stories that there's no way you'd believe it if it wasn't for like the trust you have with the people who are, who are speaking. You know what I'm talking about? It was, it was definitely one of those stories. It, uh, it was uh, one of our pastors, Jeanette, she was sharing this story with us. Here's a picture of her and this, this man, Hussein. And it's, it's his story um, on the left there who was communicating this to her. Um, Hussein grew up in Kenya uh, in an, an area where, um, 
as a, as a Muslim, no, no churches, uh, no Christians had never, never heard of Jesus, never been around anyone who talked about Jesus, none of that. Um, but one afternoon, he took a nap. And I know this, this sounds crazy, but he had a, had a dream. And this guy, didn't know, named Jesus, asked him to follow him. So he says yes. He tells his, his friends and, and family members who then beat him to an inch of his life, and yet he continues to follow this, this guy named Jesus. And I, I realize for us in our sort of um, whatever, yeah, mindset, you get me, that just seems completely unrealistic and far-fetched, and yet if you talk to those who are, who are working closely in Muslim areas, that story is not unusual. Um, it's happening over and over again. In the last decade, thousands Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of Muslims have given their life to Christ. A people group that we quickly disregard and push to the margins, think, you know what? I don't think, I don't think this story's for them. But look at the Magi. The first people, some of the very first to come and give their life to Christ. Friends, Christmas belongs to the unlikely. And really, if you think about it, if we're honest with ourselves, that is exactly who we are, isn't it? Because ethnically, we don't, we don't fit into this story, right? If you know, like, historically and the Old Testament, we don't, we don't fit. And frankly, I mean, that's just small potatoes. You think morally, right? We don't, we don't belong. We've blown it. And yet still, Jesus comes. And do you notice how clearly Matthew over and over again points out all the, the prophecies and the patterns that Jesus is fulfilling by, by coming here? All this happens exactly according to plan, and yet it's still headed all in the same direction, to the cross and to the empty tomb, because that's, that's what it takes. It's either the best or the worst. And you can be hostile towards Jesus, angry. Some of you are, right? Why are you so mad? Or you can be complacent and just sort of disregard it. Or we can do what the wise men do. Fall on our knees and worship this unheard of new king and give him the gift that he wants most of all. Everything. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you have welcomed me into your family. Not because I've said the right things or lived the right way or whatever, but simply because of your, your grace. God, I pray that we would remember that every one of us here, we, we are the unlikely. We don't belong. And yet you open wide your arms and call us to yourself. And we thank you that because of, because of Jesus, we can be made whole. That, that you long to offer us forgiveness in life. God, I pray that we would experience that personally and celebrate that. And I pray also that we would celebrate and see the incredible things that you're doing across our world. God, forgive me for how narrow-minded I am. Let us see your work. Let us rejoice.